Welcome back to The Build Podcast. I'm Blake Bartlett, a partner here at OpenView. We're here to help software founders and operators identify and unpack sustainable growth strategies in the ever-changing world of SaaS. Today, we hear from OpenView's own Kyle Poyer and Sean Fanning to talk SaaS metrics, benchmarks, and much more. Kyle is our VP of Growth here at OpenView, and Sean is our Director of Corporate Development. Each year here at OpenView, we send out a large-scale SaaS metrics and benchmarks report. This year's edition is hot off the presses. So we invited the two masterminds behind it onto the Build podcast for your listening and benchmarking pleasure. In today's episode, we discuss the impact of COVID-19 on the software industry, the metrics behind companies who are all in on product-led growth, and what to expect in 2021. All that and more on this episode of Build. So let's dive in with Kyle Poyer and Sean Fanning. Kyle and Sean, thank you for joining us here on the Build podcast today. It's great to have you guys on the show. It's great to be here, Blake. Thanks for having us, Blake. So we're going to dive into all things SaaS benchmarks today. And this is a special event for OpenView. You know, we release this SaaS benchmarks report every year. This is the fourth year that we've released it. I'm curious to get your guys' take on why we decided to start this and what you're looking to answer with this survey. You know, when I was uh, joining OpenView, I was probably the go-to data nerd on the team (laughs) and kept getting asked the same questions from founders and CFOs, you know. What growth rate should I aim for next year? What level of burn is acceptable? Is my gross margin in line with other companies? And while there's just endless amounts of data out there on publicly traded companies, I found that there's very little that's directly relevant to companies going through the expansion stage in their growth from, you know, call it 1 million to 20 million in ARR. And I've even seen some kind of harmful rules of thumb or advice around benchmarks that can hurt a company's ability to scale. For example, some folks are guided to follow the triple, triple, double, double, double rule, going from 1 million to 100 million in five years. It turns out that only happens for about 0.1% of SaaS companies who typically burn through about a billion dollars to get there. And so it didn't seem logical to plan a budget around being a statistical outlier every single year. And what doesn't always get told are the more everyday stories like Workfront, which is actually one of OpenView's first investments. We led their Series A back in 2007. They've grown steadily and efficiently over the years and just recently announced a $1.5 billion exit to Adobe. You know, and this is now 2020. And so I wanted, I believe, you know, the whole OpenView team wanted to recalibrate the conversation around what success looks like and What does it actually mean to be a top-performing software company? Yeah, it's a really helpful framing for the survey and the the impact that it can have in the broader SaaS community. I'm curious to know who participated in the survey this time around. Yeah, it's a great question, Blake. You know, just playing off what Kyle said, we had a remarkable response. And I want to emphasize, this is not just the fastest-growing venture-backed companies that are participating. While these are all private companies that participate in our survey, it is a broad range of respondents across, you know, revenue scales, geographies, different customer types. Um, You know, before I even dive into who, I have to thank who helped us get these respondents. So, 
would be remiss not to thank both our sponsor, NetSuite, joining us for a second straight year to help uh, promote the report, but then also 20 early stage venture firms who joined, helped distribute the survey to their portfolio to help us expand, one, the volume of respondents, but then also sort of where they're coming from in the world. This year, we had more than 400 companies participate, and then the report itself actually aggregates data uh, across more than 1,200 respondents over the past few years. So one of the benefits of running this survey every, every year is we get a pretty longitudinal view into the performance of private software companies. Drilling down sort of into the who, what, where, though, so these are all B2B software businesses um, selling primarily to mid-market and enterprise customers. So about 70% of our respondents sell to those customer types. Um, we're really confident about the quality of the data because 80% of the individuals responding are CEOs, CFOs, VPs of operations, the folks who sort of live and breathe these numbers every day. In terms of scale, you know, our, our respondents range everywhere from pre-revenue companies all the way to 150 million ARR publicly traded software businesses. And then about half the companies, you know, were right here in the United States, and then the rest were, were international. So a, a really diverse set of companies across, like I said, a range of scales, customer types, and geographies, which makes us feel really great that we have sort of the, the single source of truth, the best set of benchmarking data from private software companies. Now, given that this isn't the first rodeo for, for either of you guys on the SAS Benchmarks report, I'm curious to understand uh, this time around in 2020, what were the top takeaways for each of you? You know, going into this report, we launched the survey in, in the June timeframe, and we still had the uncertainty of March and April of the COVID-19 pandemic hanging over our heads. And so what we really wanted to know is what was the impact of COVID on enterprise software businesses? Um you know, I had written a piece for Crunchbase with the headline asking, posing the question, is enterprise software recession-proof back in 2018? And now that we're officially in recession and we can look at the data from public software companies and more importantly, the data about sort of private software companies, we can validate that hypothesis. Enterprise software is indeed recession-proof. And that's been the biggest takeaway for me from this report. You know, we look at public revenue multiples, which are up 50% from their pre-COVID highs. The stock prices themselves, so our index of public SaaS companies is up over 100%. Since the beginning of this year, we can see investors love enterprise software and companies themselves have never been more valuable. But it isn't just the software prices, it's the performance of both the public and the private software companies. Um, uh, across two key things. I think they're benefiting from that digital transformation megatrend, right? It was Microsoft CEO who said something along the lines of they experienced two years of digital transformation in, in two months back in Q2. Um, and then we're also just seeing that thesis we've all had, you know, high switching costs is going to make software hard to rip and replace. You know, companies are continuing to experience that. They need the software. They run their business on it. Public companies are continuing to grow really well at scale and in our private data, despite some companies, you know, responding aggressively, cutting back discretionary spend. We saw sales and marketing expense fall from sort of 40% as a percent of revenue in 2018 down to 30% this year. You know, they're not spending as much to acquire customers, but net dollar retention out is up, CAC payback is down, they're retaining and acquiring as efficiently as ever, and growth rates are still pretty strong. There's a real demand, there are strong buying signals out there in the market, and so like I started out this, this response with, I, I came away excited to confirm that hypothesis that enterprise software is indeed recession-proof. Now, listeners of the Build podcast know that I have a favorite topic, and that favorite topic is product-led growth. So I must ask, how did PLG companies fare to more traditional SaaS companies in this survey? 
So we continue to, to track a public PLG index, but we also are able to sort of segment our private data. I, I'd be, again, remiss not to touch on that, that public PLG index, which trades for around a 50% premium to the, the broader SaaS index. So companies like Zoom and Slack that are sort of beneficiaries of this work from home environment, companies that they can acquire their customers more efficiently, they're large, largely horizontal platforms have long runways for growth. So in this shift to remote work, it really empowered individuals to be more proactive determining what they needed and, and how they could be most productive working from home. Those end users are, are searching for the software that helps them solve the problems they need. You know, everything you talk about with guests on a regular basis. So as we look at, you know, again, public company data and our private data, DLG businesses are always open. They reach their customers where they live and they continue to grow faster and with greater efficiency, especially at scale. In looking at specific companies, I mean, this year we had companies like Snowflake, Asana, and JFrog uh, going public. We continue to see that PLG companies represent about half of the companies that are going public every year. Uh, interestingly, they're only about a quarter of all of the private software companies uh, in our survey. And so there's something about PLG companies that makes them appear to be more likely to you know, have the metrics and the, the 58% net dollar retention. I mean, just not only withstanding uh, a pandemic and a recession, but having incredible numbers and I think being rewarded uh, extremely favorably in the market uh, for those, those figures. And while, you know, I think Sean called out Zoom and, and Shopify and they're on everyone's minds is benefiting in some ways from the pandemic, especially as folks have shifted to remote work and uh, to buying e- and e-commerce with Shopify. And I think there are some bigger factors in play that are benefiting just about all PLG companies and uh, having uh, leading to better performance among PLG companies in the broader market. I think just first is remote work has accelerated the pace of digital adoption, uh, which is shortened sales cycles and increased the importance of time to value. You know, a lot of companies needed to adopt technology fast. I think also buyers have been hesitant about making big and expensive commitments, but companies still need software to run their business. And so in many cases, they opted for products where they could start for free or at a low cost, or maybe they could start with a product where there were already a bunch of users that were finding success with that product. Um, and it was a lower risk to scale that product across more people. And I think the final thing I just call out is that remote work coincides with just like more flexible and less predictable schedules. And PLG companies can take advantage of that because their products are always on and users can start a trial or, or premium edition on their schedule. No, no need to wait uh, for a demo. And so I think that those trends just benefited PLG companies across the board and will continue uh, to benefit PLG companies as we look into 2021. And going deeper into product-led growth, I know that the survey this time around had a number of product-led growth-specific questions in it to dive deep into that topic. What did you guys learn from those questions? We remain underwhelmed by private companies' adoption of, of product-led strategies. I mean, Kyle detailed, you know, just the this, this surface of the overwhelming success that public PLG companies have experienced. They're growing faster. They trade for uh, premiums to their non-PLG peers. But, you know, relatively few companies have really gone all in as we define it in, in the data. So we asked uh, companies the question, you know, which PLG tactics have you adopted? 
Um, and free trials remain the most popular. Uh, 46% of every respondent in, in our survey said they have a free trial. Uh, and 90% of the PLG respondents have one. But, you know, one of the taglines in our report is, you know, free trial isn't PLG. Just 30% or thereabouts of companies actually report PLG being fundamental to their business. So there's still a hesitation, at least among private companies, to really go, quote unquote, all in on PLG. Yeah, I think that there's oftentimes a misconception that having a free trial or having freemium pricing, that that is equivalent to being product led. Um, and, and they're not right. I think that's what we're seeing. And that's what we're, we're calling out at OpenView is that freemium pricing and delivering value before the paywall is certainly very important in product led growth. But that's not the extent uh, of it. You also have to build for the end user. You have to make it easy to get started. Self-service is key. There's a lot of aspects outside of just pricing uh, th- that's under the umbrella of product-led growth. I totally agree, uh, Blake. And, and I think there is this misconception about PLG being for, you know, maybe a prosumer or an SMB market. And one of the insights for me is that this really does scale into the mid-market and enterprise, uh, and particularly as companies mature in their growth. Uh, I think many of us have seen the stat that more than half of Zoom's customers who spend $100,000 or more per year started with a single free host, right? Uh, and these dynamics are playing out in private companies too. While uh, PLG is the norm among companies targeting very small businesses, 34% of companies selling into the mid-market uh, employ PLG tactics, and so do 27% of companies selling into the enterprise. So I think it's about a cohesive strategy that starts with solving that end-user pain and then ladders up to team pain and organization-wide pain over time uh, and is able to really scale into large deals. Uh, it's not, not all at once. And it's, uh, it's in a way that is natural, leads with value, really easy for the company to get started uh, and can just be both more scalable from a company's perspective, more efficient for their growth and providing a better customer experience. Yeah, Kyle, I'm glad that you brought up Zoom. Obviously, this year in 2020, Zoom has become a cultural phenomenon, uh, and we're all spending lots of time, certainly at work on Zoom, but even outside of work. Uh, I've attended Zoom weddings. Uh, I did my birthday party on Zoom. I do Zooms with my parents uh, quite frequently. SNL is on Zoom. And I don't think that we would see that massive uh, adoption outside of B2B communications if you weren't able to self-service the product. Uh, If it said talk to sales or request demo and you had to fill out a contract, clearly that would orient towards business users, but not towards everybody else that has adopted Zoom this year. So product-led growth and self-service and freemium pricing, all of those things are necessary to see that rocket ship growth and that hockey stick growth that companies like Zoom have seen. So that makes sense to me. Now, I guess shifting gears a bit, um, as we look to the horizon of 2021, What are some of the key trends that you guys have your eyes focused on based off of what we saw in the survey? One of the things for me is that I really think companies are going to be going back into hyper growth mode. And there's a few reasons why. I think, first of all, we saw that the COVID impact was not as significant as we feared, um, especially for companies that were not uh, overly exposed to the hospitality uh, sector. And so the, the typical company in our survey saw COVID had about a 10 to 25% impact on their budget. Uh, overall, the median growth rates went from around 50% to around 40% year-over-year growth. So they still grew, uh, just not quite as fast as in the past. But interestingly, 
they got much more disciplined around where they spent money. And so many companies started to control their discretionary spend, made sure that they had plenty of cash runway. Uh, they started spending more time to shore up relationships with existing customers. And so we saw net dollar retentions go up and CAC paybacks remain fairly healthy uh, despite this uh, you know, significant impact from COVID. And so I think that SaaS companies are now in a really interesting position where they have the right foundation uh, to ramp back up their investments in sales and marketing to get back to uh, the growth rates that they've been accustomed to. But I think the trick is balancing uh, this commitment to, be, to having more balance and customer-centric growth rather than immediately swinging the pendulum back to the old growth at all costs way of scaling. So you're painting a picture between wise growth and growth that contemplates ROI and the impact of your investments versus the growth at all costs that, that you mentioned there. So I'm curious, you know, how can companies do that wise and conscious growth and be mindful of the inputs and the outputs? I think one of the first things is just to have a process-driven go-to-market team. So one of the most common reasons why growth stalls at a lot of companies is that the go-to-market motion was more trial and error. It was never designed to be repeatable. And uh, performance on the go-to-market side didn't unlock future spend um, or you know, future investments. And without repeatability, it's impossible to bring on new team members and see consistent uh, results. And so we, I, I would particularly recommend installing process discipline early on in growth, even at the Series A or Series B, when you might have a pretty small sales team. And that starts with defining your go-to-market KPIs, uh, how you measure the effectiveness of your go-to-market team, looking at leading indicators of future performance like time to quota, time to first deal, average quota attainment of your reps, the percentage of your reps who hit at least 70% of their quota, uh, metrics that are really going to allow you to plan for your business in a uh, in a way that both drives growth, but makes sure that growth is purposeful and planned and, and going to be efficient. Um, I think a, a couple of other things to call out would be to continue to go after expansion revenue, right? So of the companies that filed their S1s to go public in 2020, their average net dollar retention was 126%. So we used to say 100% was the goal, but clearly uh, the, the SaaS companies that have performed uh, especially well have cracked the code on being able to expand their, their customers. And it consistently, and especially in pre-COVID uh, time, the average company spent far more time trying to go after new logos versus expanding with the customers they already had. And so you know, I think that there, there's an opportunity to start to bring also this process discipline uh, into the, uh, the way customers or companies engage with their customers and drive expansion uh, and upsell within their customer base. And one way to do that is uh, bring back a pricing and packaging initiative. And so I've said it many times that pricing and packaging is you know, probably the, one of the most efficient uh, and effective growth levers at any company's uh, disposal. But most companies put their pricing initiatives on the back burner at the height of the pandemic. They didn't want to upset, upset their existing customers or create friction in acquiring new ones. And it's time to really bring those initiatives. Yeah, Kyle, back. I couldn't agree 
any more with everything you said except for one point, and that is uh, companies were disciplined with spending this year. Um, I think they were. Everything you said stands. But I, I think going forward, Blake, we're going to see companies look a lot more closely at their product and engineering spend. It just remains a black box where, where companies are putting money with no real sense for return on investment. You know, as we looked at the data this year, companies are still spending 30% of their revenue on product and engineering, which is identical to the value from last year and the year before that. So while companies you know, looked at sales and marketing, tried to figure out where they could make cuts to sort of get on that cash flow break even path if they needed to, um, they didn't touch product and engineering. But we've got you know 50% of the founders who respond to our survey saying that they're worried about product execution, but they don't even know how they're spending money. So I think we need to, going forward, start holding product and engineering teams to the same standards as sales and marketing teams is they're just as involved, especially with the rise of PLG and acquiring, converting, expanding their users. They are revenue generating resources, whether or not we've sort of broadly acknowledged it. And how can companies start to take steps in that direction? We we call that a few things in the report, you know, the first being a bucket of tactics and then the second of metrics. So in terms of tactics, right, just like we hold sales and marketing teams to, to, to different metrics, we should start setting things like product KPIs, you know, real business impact KPIs that management teams will monitor, whether that's things like product influence revenue or word of mouth, referral acquisition revenue, attributing revenue to actual features, measuring team velocity or product quality indicators, just getting a better sense for the output of the engineering team. You can also look at things like ROI-based sprints. If you're going to go into sprint planning, tie the KPIs or the feature releases to come out of that sprint to a hurdle rate. It, it must return X amount of revenue over X period of time to understand if there's real value coming out of what's happening on the engineering side. And then finally, performance-based pay, you know, reward team members with upside when they drive real impact in the product funnel. Just like the best sales reps are making sort of hundreds of thousands of dollars in commissions, we should you know, do the same thing for product managers if they're launching features that are driving significant amount of inbound traffic and then revenue in, into the, the business. And then in terms of metrics, you know, we, we call that a few in the report. One that I love, though, is you know, some refer to it as burn productivity. Others give it the more technical name of return on incremental invested capital. But... As much as I love the the tried and true SaaS metrics, CAC payback, net dollar retention, burn rate, you know, I like this burn productivity because what it does is look at the ratio of gross profit added to the total amount of sales and marketing expense and product and engineering expense. So looking at amount of gross profit that we're getting back for a single dollar of sales and marketing and product and engineering expense, the two largest buckets of expense in a software company that are driving revenue. Um, so when we look at this metric for public software companies, it's more tightly correlated with valuation and with growth rate. And we find the same thing in our benchmarks data. Companies with better burn productivity are growing faster when they sort of acknowledge that product also owns revenue. It is generating revenue and they, the organization rallies around that. Now, shifting gears away from the, the purely financially oriented metrics, uh, there was a few other interesting questions in the survey this time around. The first one to touch on is about fundraising. You put some questions in about how do founders feel about fundraising and how do they really feel about their VCs? So, so what did you learn on that front? You know, it's a seller's market in VC. After pausing fundraising at the height of the pandemic, uh, companies have found that you know, their performance was surprisingly strong. They're, as I've said, they're ready to uh, step back on the gas and accelerate growth into 2021. 
and you know they're finding a number of options available uh, from a fundraising perspective, including you know, classic equity funding um, and, and term sheets from VCs, but then even a, a number of diverse uh, funding mechanisms that have really proliferated over the years. And, and so, you know, I think with founders in a position where they're ready to fundraise and there's plenty of options to consider, so we're thinking, you know, how should they make that choice and how do they really feel about their VCs? So we asked a, a VC NPS question of how likely uh, are you as a founder to uh, recommend your current investors uh, to other founders? And we found that only two in five actually said that they would recommend their VC. Uh, the NPS falls below that of the airline industry, which uh, is saying something, right? And so I think there's really significant pressure on VCs to step up and prove their partnership. And from a founder perspective, they're going to need to start looking beyond round size and valuation and ask hard questions to their VCs of what value do those investors really add to their business and will they and their extended team roll up their sleeves and help? So I expect to see founders, you know, really looking for uh, much more from their VCs than they've looked for in the past. Well, it's interesting because what you hear so often in the VC industry is people saying things like everyone's money is green, but we're different, right? We, we don't just invest money, uh, we're value-added partners. And, and we got all these resources that are going to help and, you know, recognizing things like that. But it, it's, it's one thing to say that, and it's another thing to deliver on it. And I think what this data shows is that VCs on average uh, are not delivering on it. And there's a lot of room for improvement. Totally. They're delivering on board representation and, uh, occasional introductions and not a whole lot else. So shifting gears again, I know that the tech industry has been slow to appreciate issues around diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, but appears to finally be waking up to it. It's long overdue, but it's happening. And there was some questions in the survey about that. So what'd you learn on that front? We're, we're once again disappointed, right? You know, last year there was stagnation in the data. Uh, and, and again, this year, progress towards, you know, the enterprise software industry building more diverse teams and boards remains pretty underwhelming. I think it wasn't all bad. There was one bright spot. You know, 42% of our respondents had one or more female board members, which is up from last year. And then that's, you know, almost 50, a 50% improvement versus our 2017 survey. There's probably some, you know, governmental action that's driving that, like California's boardroom diversity law, um, because, you know, otherwise only 14% of companies have gender parity in leadership uh, and just 6% gender parity. So sort of a, a true 50-50 split of men versus women at the board level. Um, and, you know, while the progress on gender diversity has been slow, we are encouraged by a lot of the cultural momentum around ending systemic racism and, and committing to racial and ethnic diversity, equity and inclusion. Um, but it does remain to be seen whether this activism will translate into meaningful representation within positions of leadership in, in software businesses. In, in this year's survey, 45% of our, our companies had one underrepresented minority in leadership, but even fewer, just 27%, had more than one uh, underrepresented minority board of director members. So on both fronts, both, both gender and race, we're far from equal representation. Um, and we're going to continue. We're going to make a commitment to keep reporting on those metrics to make sure that we, along with our peers, are continuing to, to push for more diversity, equity, inclusion in the industry. 
So lots of great insights per usual from the survey here. Really appreciate you guys putting together the survey, highlighting the insights and the learnings on the OpenView website, and then coming on the podcast to further illustrate what you guys found from the survey. So thanks so much for, for all the work here. And thanks so much for joining us here on the episode today. Thanks, Blake. Thanks for listening to this episode of Build. If you like what you've heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to stay up to date with all the new episodes. Follow me, Blake Bartlett, on LinkedIn to join in on the conversation and let me know what you think about the show. Join me this season on Build as we look into the brilliant minds scaling Slack, Notion, Atlassian, and more to discover what it takes to build an awesome product and achieve hypergrowth across every stage of maturity, from seed to IPO and beyond. Now, if you're ready, let's build this together. See you next time here on Build. Build.